right, good morning, everybody. If you have your Bible with you this morning, Galatians chapter 3 is where you need to turn. If you have your Bible with you, turn there. If you don't have a Bible with you, please grab one from the pew rack right in front of you. Turn to Galatians chapter 3 so you can follow along as we study God's Word together this morning. Last week, as we continued our study of Galatians, we once again talked about the role of the law in the life of a Christian. There were two big ideas that I wanted you to see last week. First, had to do with these three uses of the law. We've talked about this for a while now. We'll put it on the screen so you'll be reminded. Three uses of the law. First, the law was given to restrain wickedness generally. Second, the law shows us our guilt and leads us to Christ. And the third and principal use of the law, as Calvin puts it, is as an instrument to learn God's will. The law doesn't just show us our sins so that we might be drawn to Christ. It shows us how to live as those who do belong to Christ. And, and I want you to be mindful of those three uses of the law, especially in Galatians chapter 3, because Galatians chapter 3 emphasizes the second use of the law. But it doesn't emphasize the second use of the law to the exclusion of the two other uses of the law. And so I don't, I don't want to give you some kind of reason based on Galatians chapter 3 to throw the law out the window for, for the Christian life. Um, we want to keep it in its right place, uh, but recognize that this text is emphasizing the second use of the law. Second big idea that I wanted you to see last week is that the law and the promises are not contrary to one another. Look at chapter 3, verse 20. 21, actually. It says, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. The law and the promises of God do not contradict one another. They are not at odds with one another. And we need to be very careful that we don't live our lives as if they are at odds with one another. In fact, I think there's a great danger in a church like ours that we would treat the law of God with some kind of disdain. That we would see it as an ugly thing or a bad thing in our lives. And we need to learn to see it as a glorious thing in our lives, but keep it in its proper place. The law was never intended to justify people. The law was never intended to reconcile people to God. But it is intended to show us our sin, drive us to Christ, and then teach us how to live as people who belong to Christ. This week we're going to see more about the law and the promise. Particularly, this week we will see what life was like before Christ came and what life is like now that he has come, that he has lived, that he has died for our sins, and that he has risen again. We will see what it looks like today to be united with him. Now, 35 years ago, as he preached through Galatians to his church in Minneapolis, John Piper provided a helpful framework for this text today. And we're going to use his outline as our guide today because I think Piper rightly captures the progress, the progression in Paul's argument in this text. Now, I want to use his outline because it helps us have this framework. And I want to tell you that parts of Galatians, as we've been studying this letter, have been easy preaching. I mean, bread and butter stuff that we just all love. It's easy to understand. It's easy to apply. Much of what we have studied so far in Galatians has been like that. It's been easy preaching. Uh, this section that we're in right now, not so easy. And so I am thankful for guys like Piper who can give us an outline that will guide us. So here is the outline we'll work with today from Piper. He points out four steps in the argument. First, he says, before faith came, Israel was confined under the law. That'll be point one, confined under the law, which functioned like a custodian or a tutor or a governess. 
which gave restraint and guidance, but couldn't give inheritance. That's an important point, couldn't give inheritance. Second, Christ came, and with him, a great movement of faith. That'll be the second big point, a great movement of faith. Third, Piper says, wherever men and women are united with Christ by faith, that'll be point three, united with Christ by faith, which is symbolized in baptism, they are justified and become children of God and heirs of his promise to Abraham. And I would add so much more, as we'll see in the text. When you are united with Christ, you are given so much in Christ. And fourth, Piper says, therefore, we who are in Christ are no longer under the law. No longer under the law. That'll be the fourth step in the argument. And we'll talk about what that means as Christians to no longer be under the law, but see the law as a guide for our living. So let's check it out today in Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 23. We'll study through verse 29 today. This is what God's word says. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. Let's pray together. Father, we, we are so thankful today for your word and for your spirit that teaches us your word, reminds us of things that we have already been taught and sheds light on a text like this. And we need that today. We need your help to understand your word, to rightly receive your word, to properly apply your word, to obey your word. We don't want to do this on our own. We realize it would be empty and futile on our own. So we pray that you'll teach us today and change us by your grace as a gift and for your glory as the ultimate end that you would be made much of in our lives and through our lives. In Christ's name we pray. So big idea number one is this idea of being confined under the law. Paul uses two images in this text to describe the situation of the Jews primarily before the coming of Jesus. In verse 23, he speaks of being shut up or kept in custody. In verse 24, he speaks of being under the watch care of a tutor. Now before we dive into those images and kind of pick them apart and see what they mean, we need to spend a minute talking about what he means by, quote, before faith came. Before faith came. What does he mean by before faith came? Well, since he has been using Abraham as his great example of one who was justified by faith and not by works of the law, he cannot here in this text be implying that no one was living by faith in the Old Testament era. He's not saying that no one was living by faith or with faith in the Old Testament era. Quite to the contrary. If we remember back to our study of Hebrews, we came to chapter 11 where there are all of these heroes of the faith who are listed. All of these Old Testament folks who were examples of what it, mean, what it looks like to live by faith, right? Do you remember how all this went? 
By faith Noah, by faith Abraham, by faith Isaac, by faith everybody, right? Well, no, not everybody. Not everybody in ancient Judaism was listed in chapter 11. So there were men and women of Old Testament days in Hebrews 11 that are examples of what it looks like to live by faith in the Messiah who was to come. Also, in Paul's own writings in Romans chapter 11, he makes a reference to a scene from Elijah's life. And this is pretty powerful. Uh, You can read about it in 1 Kings chapters 18 and 19. Maybe you remember this story about about Elijah uh, kind of challenging the prophets of Baal to this showdown. You remember this at Mount Carmel where he he said, we'll see. we, We need to stop being on the fence and let's just see. Let's just see who really is God. And whosoever God answers by fire, that one will be God, right? And so he invited the prophets of Baal to set up their sacrifice and to call on Baal to answer by fire and consume the sacrifice. You remember this? And they did all the stuff, and they were hooping and hollering and dancing around and cutting themselves, all the while Elijah is mocking them, right? At one point, Elijah says to the prophets of Baal, maybe you need to speak louder because your God is in the bathroom and he can't hear you. You remember that? And they do all of this stuff and nothing happens. Baal doesn't answer. Nothing happens. And Elijah, he prepares his sacrifice. He prepares his altar. And and he invites people to bring water and pour over all of it. Right? He says, like, don't stop. Just keep pouring water on it. And so everything is just soaking wet. And then Elijah says a very simple prayer. Right? A very simple prayer to the Lord. No hooping and hollering. No dancing around. No cutting himself. He just says, God, hear my prayer and show yourself to be God. And what happens? God answers by fire. Fire falls from heaven and consumes the sacrifice and the altar and all the water that had gathered around the altar. And it even consumes the stones upon which the animal was placed. This is a serious fire and it is proof positive that Yahweh is God. Right? And then, right after that, after winning this big victory, Elijah rounds up all the prophets of Baal. He takes them down to this little stream, and he kills them all there so that the blood of these prophets of Baal runs down the stream. It is the greatest victory we've read about in quite some time in 1 Kings. And right after that, the king's wife says, you remember her name? Jezebel. Jezebel says, Elijah, I'll kill you by this time tomorrow, or I'll die myself. And Elijah, after winning this great victory, runs away like a scared little boy. Runs away in discouragement and despair, and he hides from her. And maybe you remember, he ends up in a certain place, and uh, he's in this cave, and there's a whirlwind, and there's a fire, and there's an earthquake, and finally he hears from God. And how does he hear from God in the fire, or in the earthquake, or in the whirlwind? No, he hears from God in the still, small voice, right? And you remember what God says to him? What are you doing here? I think that is a powerful word for us when we go through difficult times like that. When for reasons that we maybe can't explain, we are in the depths of despair. Sometimes they happen right after a major victory and we're just lost. We're just hopeless. And God speaks to Elijah and he says, what are you doing here? And I think we could meditate on that. What are you doing here? What are you doing here? Elijah, what are you doing here? What are you doing here, hiding from that woman? What are you doing here, of all places? Elijah has this moment, and as he's speaking to God, and God is speaking to him, Elijah essentially says to God, I'm the only one. I'm the only one left. I'm the only one who has faith in you. I'm the only one who trusts in you. You remember what God says to him when he says that? Wrong. 
Wrong. You're not the only one, Elijah. I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. I've kept for myself a remnant. You're not the only one. There are many who still live by faith. The point in telling you all this story is, one, it's a great story that we should be familiar with, right? And two, it shows us that when Paul here says, until faith came, he is not implying that there was no faith in the Old Testament. Because even when Elijah thought he was the only one who had faith, God answers him and says, no, Elijah, 7,000 of my people have faith. And that's an interesting thread to chase throughout the Old Testament, is God's keeping of a remnant for himself. When many lacked faith, he always kept a remnant who had faith for himself. So in the Old Testament, the point of all this, in the Old Testament, there are examples of faithful men and women. Faithful men and women who trusted in the Messiah to come and demonstrated that trust, that faith, through their obedience. But, by and large, the Jews weren't trusting. They weren't being justified by faith. They weren't receiving righteousness as a gift, as a general rule. Rather, as a general rule, they were either trying to earn it by their obedience or they were assuming it because of their ancestry. Like that's what we need to recognize, that that many, most of the Jewish people in the Old Testament were either trying to earn their justification by their obedience to the law or they were just assuming justification because of their ancestry that could be traced back to Abraham. But there were some who really believed. There were some who were truly trusting. Now go back to the images in verse 23. In verse 23 speaks of being shut up or kept in custody. And this is very much related to what we saw last week in chapter 3, verse 22. Chapter 3, verse 22 says, But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin. It's the same language in verse 23. So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. One of the things that the law does is show us our sin. It shows us just how sinful we are. In some ways, the law ruins us by showing us the depth of our depravity. Now, this is not because there is something wrong with the law. It's because there is something wrong with our hearts. Our hearts need to be radically changed. And the law cannot change hearts. The law was never designed to change hearts. Remember last week I told you this poem, and maybe you've meditated on it some. First line of the poem says, Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. The law tells you what to do, but it does not give you the power to do it. The ESV translation of verse 23, I think, is superior to New American Standard when it says that we were shut up until the coming faith would be revealed. In other words, it's best to understand this uh, captivity as taking place until Jesus came. That those who were under the law, we're in captivity to the law until the coming of Jesus. In verse 24, he speaks of a different illustration of being under the watch care of a tutor. This is a pretty interesting image that is unfamiliar to us. It's the Greek word pedagogus, which means literally tutor or guide or guardian. N.T. Wright describes it like this. It'll be on the screen. He says that word refers to a slave whose task it was to look after children day by day, on the parents' behalf, taking them to school, making sure they were safe, keeping them out of mischief, and so on. John Stott adds a level of understanding to it when he says, he, that is is the tutor, was often harsh to the point of cruelty. 
and is usually depicted in an ancient drawing with a rod or cane in his hand. So that's the picture. He says you were, you were held in captivity, you were, you were uh, shut up and locked up under the law until the faith came, until Jesus came. You were under this tutor who is not like your best buddy walking through life with you. He's a rigid taskmaster. But notice that Paul says the purpose of the law as a tutor is to bring us to Jesus so that we may be justified by faith. That's precisely what it says in the text. He says, therefore, the law has become a tutor to us, become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. John Stott goes on and he says this, this is powerful. He says, we cannot come to Christ to be justified until we have first been to Moses to be condemned. We can't come to Christ to be justified until we first been to Moses and the law to be condemned. But once we've gone to Moses and acknowledged our sin and guilt and condemnation, we must not stay there. We must let Moses send us to Christ. That's part of what the law does. Sends us to Jesus to be justified by works of the law? No way. But by faith in the work of Christ. So this is a description of use number two of the law. But even as we talk about this, we must remember that use number two, show us our sin and drive us to Christ, is not the only use of the law. Let's note in this text that the law as jailer or the law as tutor can do a lot. But it cannot make us children. The law cannot make us heirs. As Piper said earlier, it gave restraint and guidance but couldn't give us inheritance. And this is what life was like under the law. This is what life was like before faith came. But then faith came. The life under the law before faith came was not pretty. But then things changed and Jesus came. So that's big point number two. There was a great movement of faith. Remember, there were men and women of faith in the Old Testament. But they seem to be the exception and not the rule when we look at the nation of Israel. Yet when Jesus came, he kicked off this great movement of faith. Think back to Acts chapter 2. In fact, turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 is the scene at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit is poured out and Peter preaches. And when Peter preaches, he basically just proclaims Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection. And he proclaims Jesus as Lord. And notice the reaction of the people here. Look at Acts 2, start in verse 36. Acts 2, 36. Talking about what it looks like when faith came. Acts 2, 36 says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That's the end of Peter's sermon. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise, the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, and as many as the Lord God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had re- received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and, with, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles'. 
and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. That's the beginning of a great movement of faith, right? And it doesn't stop. People hear the message of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. They hear the message that Jesus is Lord. And what is the response? Faith. Believing. Trusting in Jesus Christ. It happens the second time Peter preaches. This guy is on a roll, right? He's preached two sermons. And thousands of people have been saved. Thousands of people are believing in Jesus. Look at chapter 4. Chapter 4, start in verse 1. This is after Peter's second sermon. Acts chapter 4 verse 1 says, As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them to put them in jail the next day, for it was already evening. But, there's a good but there, but many of those who heard the message believed. And the number of men came to be about 5,000. We saw what life was like under the law before faith came. But then faith came. And people's, people's lives are being radically changed, uh, transformed by the preaching of the gospel, by the power of the Spirit. There was this great movement of faith. Piper says on the screen, when the law was preached, it met with very little faith. Not no faith, but very little faith. But when the gospel is preached, many believe and are saved. The movement has spread around the world. The reason why the law mostly shut people up in sin while the gospel wins faith from large numbers is that the preaching of the gospel is accompanied by a powerful work of the Holy Spirit to open hearts of the listeners. Now that faith has come, faith unites people to Christ. There's this great movement of faith. I want you to see that. That's point number two. And that faith unites believers to Christ. That's point number three. We are united with Christ by faith. Now this idea of union with Christ, so rich. It's so rich. And the Lord is opening my eyes to the glories of it more and more recently. In fact, as Brad was teaching Sunday school this morning in here, he kept using the language of in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. And, and that is more and more beautiful to me all the time. I want to grasp more and more every day, that the true gift of the gospel is union with Christ. And the benefits, which we so often preach as primary, are simply byproducts of being united with Christ. And this text teaches us that. That these things that we usually put out there as the primary thing in salvation are actually only secondary benefits of being united with Christ. Look what the text says. The text is going to teach us that if you are united with Christ by faith, then you are justified. Look at verse 24. If you are not united with Christ by faith, you are justified. He says, therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified. This text teaches us that if you are united with Christ by faith, you are a son of God. Look at verse 26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. It also teaches us that if you are united with Christ by faith, you are one with others who are united with Christ by faith. Look at verse 28. 
There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now we are going to spend all of next week teasing out the implications of that verse for our lives. We're going to talk about matters of racism. We're going to talk about matters of sexism. We're going to talk about some things that have been in the news recently, even within the Southern Baptist Convention. We're going to talk about what that text means for us very practically. We're going to set aside a whole week to do that. The gospel changes the way we relate to one another. The gospel changes the way we see one another, as Brad said in Sunday school this morning. It brings us together uh, across things that would keep us apart in the world. The gospel changes the way we relate to one another. And if we are gospel people, we will relate to one another in unity. This text also teaches us that if you are united with Christ by faith, then you are Abraham's descendant. Look at verse 29. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendant and also an heir according to the promise. Look at the end of verse 29. Heirs according to the promise. I want you to notice the strength of the language in all of this. He doesn't say, if you are united with Christ, then you might be this. You might be justified or you potentially can be justified. He speaks it as absolute fact, indicative statements. If you are united with Christ, you are justified. If you are united with Christ, you are a son of God. If you are united with Christ, you are are united with others who are united with Christ. If you are united with Christ, you are Abraham's descendant, and you are an heir according to the promise. We, we saw this in Sunday school a minute ago in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If any man is in Christ, he's, he is a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, new things have come. These are statements of fact for everyone who is in Christ. So the question today is not, are you justified? Are you a son of God? Are you one with others? Are you Abraham's descendant? Are you an heir according to the promise? The singular question of the day is, are you in Christ? Are you united with Christ by faith? And if you are, then all those other things are true. And if you're not, you have no hope. Are you united with Christ by faith? Are you in Christ? This union, which is spiritual and invisible, is symbolized in the water of baptism for believers. Notice what he says. In verse 27, he says, For you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. I want to caution you, Baptists, not to see what he's talking about there as primarily water baptism. You don't, let me say it this way, You don't come to be in Christ by water baptism. It is not water baptism that unites a person with Jesus. It is faith that unites a person with Jesus. And water baptism is simply a picture and a proclamation of that union with Christ. The union with Christ exists before that water. That water illustrates the union with Christ for the world to see. Now, having said that, I want to clarify that baptism is important. If you are in Christ, you should get baptized. Like that, that's something that you need to hear today. This, uh, that's going to be one of the applications at the end. Maybe you need to get baptized. You are one with Christ. You are trusting in Christ. You are united with Christ by faith. 
You are a son of God because you are united with Christ. You are justified because you're united with Christ. Get baptized and show the world this union with Christ. Baptism is important. If you are in Christ, you should be baptized with water. But being baptized with water does not necessarily mean that you are in Christ. Otherwise, we would just rent the pool out for the summer, right? And we would dunk as many kids as we possibly could. If all it took was putting someone under the water to get them in Christ, that should be our mission. But that's not how you come to be in Christ. You come to be in Christ by grace, through faith, in Christ. Union with Christ gives us a whole new identity. That's number four. A whole new identity. We are no longer under the law. Being united with Christ by faith changes our perspective on the law. We are no longer under it as we were before. Before, Paul said, we were held captive to it. We were shut up under it. Before, it was our harsh tutor carrying around a rod to beat us with. Back then, the law made demands, but we had no power to obey those demands. No way to execute. But now, in Christ, with the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us, we have a whole new perspective on the law. We should have a whole new perspective of the law. We shouldn't see it any longer as the mean old tutor. We shouldn't see it any longer as the prison that bound us up. We should see it as the great joy of our lives, as a gift from God to direct us as to how we should live. It's not our prison anymore. It's not our taskmaster anymore. It is our joy now. Remember the poem from last week? Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. I would much rather fly than run any day, wouldn't you? And I like to run. But if I could fly, I would do that. And now, as believers in Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, as those who are in Christ, we can fly. And therefore, we should. We should look at the law, not as restrictive, not as heavy burden, but as a joy, a joy and a direction from our loving Father. Not the slave who's a taskmaster, not the jailer who keeps us captive, but our Father who's given us these directions by which to live. So this doesn't mean, when it says that we are no longer under the law, this doesn't mean we throw the law out the window as if it has no value or worse yet is a bad thing. Rather, we see the law now sons, as heirs. We see the law as a gift in many ways from our Father to direct our lives. So there are two questions today for application. Two questions that have about seven subpoints. so don't get too excited yet. Number one, big question of our lives is are you in Christ? Are you in Christ? Are you in Christ by faith? Are you trusting in the person and work of Jesus Christ? Are you united with him by faith in him? Or are you trying to be united with him some other way? Are you trying to be united with him because of your baptism? Are you trying to be united with him because of your church membership? Are you trying to be united with him because of your service or work? There's only one way to be united with Christ, and it is by faith. By trusting in him, by believing in him, we become united with him. Are you in Christ by faith? Sub-question is, if so, have you been baptized? 
Have you been baptized to demonstrate and visualize this union with Christ? To profess this union with Christ to the world around you? If not, let's do it. What are you waiting for? If you are in Christ by faith, let's get baptized. We will celebrate and rejoice over the work that God has done in your life. If you're not in Christ by faith, here's the invitation. Trust in him today. Run to him today and find his arms wide open, which is what we will sing in just a minute. Are you in Christ by faith? Have you been baptized? Question number two, how do you see the law currently? If you're saying, I am in Christ, my question for you today is, how do you see the law? And if you have a disdain in your heart for the law as a believer, something is wrong in the situation. Like if you read the law and you scoff at it, if you read the law and you rebel against it immediately, something's wrong in your heart. Do you see it as a jailer, taskmaster, or do you see the law as a delight to you? Listen to Jesus' words or read them on the screen behind me. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I think that is the invitation to the person who is under the law before faith came. He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. They've got the law upon them, and it's crushing them. And he says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. I think if you'll look at that text closely, you will not see Jesus say, come to me, and you'll have no burden. Come to me, and you'll have no yoke. Come to me, and you just do whatever you want. Come to me, and throw the law out the window. I don't think that's what he's saying there. I I think he's saying, come to me, and you'll have a new perspective on the law. Come to me, and you'll have the Spirit of God living inside of you, and you will be able to gladly do what you couldn't do before. You will gladly do what you didn't want to do before. You will see the law as a gracious gift from your Father, your loving Father, to direct you. And so I want to invite that. I want to invite the same thing that Jesus says here. I want to say to you, come to Jesus, all who are weary and heavy laden, and he will give you rest. Take his yoke upon you and learn from him, for he is gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Let's stand together and pray. Father, in these moments, we pray that you will help us to consider these two big questions of the day. Are we in Christ and how do we see the law? I want to pray first for your people, those who are in Christ, that you will help us to rejoice in the illustration of water baptism, that you will help us to delight in your law and meditate upon it day and night, to no longer see it as a jailer or a tutor with a rod threatening to beat us, but as an easy yoke and a light burden because of the transformation you have wrought in us. And we want to pray for men and women and boys and girls who are here who are not in Christ. They are not trusting in the work of Jesus Christ. 
in his death, burial, and resurrection. I pray that today you will do what only you can do and teach them about their sin and the judgment they deserve from you because of their sin. I pray that you will teach them about Jesus' death on the cross as being substitutionary for them, that Christ died for them, suffered in their place, and rose again. And I pray that you will give them faith to believe, to trust completely in Christ, that you will give them a new heart that desires to live for you, that you will put your spirit in them, enable and equip them to do what you would have them to do. We ask nothing short of a miracle in these moments that you would raise the dead, give life where there is none, and you would get all the glory for it. In Christ's name we pray.